Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Dana R. Fisher, professor of sociology and director of the Program for Society and the Environment at the University of Maryland. Her work has appeared in The Washington Post, The New York Times, USA Today, and NPR, among other national media outlets. Dr. Fisher's research focuses on activism and protest, which is, of course, a very timely topic as we mark the one-year anniversary of the Women's March, which occurred in multiple cities around the United States and internationally, and ranks as one of the largest, if not the largest, single-day protest ever. Dr. Fisher, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Michael. You know, to start with, I'd like to know why you chose to study activism and protest movements, and what drew you to this topic? That's a really good question. I was an activist um, in college, and actually left after college. I came here to D.C. to try my hand in politics, and um, continued to be really interested in activism and protest but um, wasn't really feeling like I was making much of a difference with the work I was doing. Once I got to graduate school and I did my PhD in sociology, I realized that uh, I could use the social sciences and the tools of the social sciences actually to answer a lot of the big questions that I, I had. And I felt like that was probably the best way that I could personally make a difference. So I've been doing it ever since. Now, can you tell me, can you tell us about what you're currently working on? Yes, yeah, so the big pro project that I'm focusing on right is a project called American Resistance. It is a book in progress that is going to be coming out with Columbia University Press after the midterm elections. But within the project, I've been focusing on different components of the resistance that we've seen emerge since the election of Donald Trump. And particularly, I've been focusing on what's happened since the inauguration last January the 21st, sorry, January the 20th was the inauguration. And in that project, I've been focusing on what I think of as three components of the resistance, and that is resistance in the streets, resistance in the districts, and then resistance within the government itself. So I've been very busy keeping track of all that's going on. Now, there certainly has been a lot going on, but, you know, when I think about protests and resistance, I, my, I sort of automatically go back to the 1960s. And it seems to me that that was sort of a high watermark for, for protest movements and citizen activism. But, but I'm wondering if we're maybe starting in to get to another high watermark for that. What do you think? I would certainly agree with that. I mean, there's no question that the period around the 60s was a period of heightened activism in the United States and heightened protests for that matter. And we really saw a lull since then in a lot of ways. I mean, during the 60s, we had the emergence of the civil rights movement, second wave feminism, as well as the environmental movement, all uh, coming together at that time. And then all of these different societal changes happened since. I see something very similar happening now. Although what's different, in my opinion, is that the movement instead has emerged as a response or a reaction to the election of Donald Trump and then the um, politics and policies of the Trump administration and the president himself. So, so in other words, this is focused much more on a, on a single individual than some previous big protest movements we've seen. Yes, I mean, there's no question that there are connections in the resistance today to the environmental movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, the immigration movement, 
Occupy Wall Street, you can see all of their um, residual effects and these movements coming together in many ways when you look at who's participating in the resistance. But in a lot of ways, I think that the election itself motivated a lot of people and incited them to action. That's not to say that people aren't focused on certain components of the resistance. And there is obviously a big section of activism that's focusing around immigration and immigration reform, as well as DACA, of course. There's a big section that was focused around um, uh, health care and what was going to happen to what they call Obamacare. And then there's also been a lot of people who have been up in arms and worried about environmental issues since the Trump administration has taken office. And they've used a lot of executive orders as well as um, other policy initiatives so that they're able to roll back a lot of regulations that have to do with the environment. But what we really can see now is that that's all under this umbrella that is reacting to the Trump administration and its policies. Right. Now, you, earlier you mentioned uh, that the people who were doing the protesting, I, I wanted to ask you about that. Is there a certain type of person who's who's drawn to these uh, resistance activities? I mean, do they have any sort of common demographic, socioeconomic, uh, ideological characteristics? Those are great questions. So one of the things that I've been doing since the Women's March back on the 21st of January 2017 is with a team of researchers, we've been out doing random surveys of the large-scale protests that have happened since the Women's March, including the Women's March. So I actually do have demographic information about these large-scale marches. And I can tell you that in a lot of ways, I mean, first of all, uh, marching and protesting tends to be a tactic more embraced by the left than the right. So it's not a surprise that while people are reacting to a Republican administration, there's more protests than we saw during the Obama administration, for example, or other Democratic administrations. But the things that we know about the people who have been in the streets is that they're they're more female than male, but not overwhelmingly so. Although the Women's March did turn out 85% women, that's not surprising since it was, by definition, a Women's March. But it tends to be that activists and volunteers in America, the research shows that that is always more female than male, and we see the same thing within the resistance. One of the other things that's very interesting is we do see that this the people who participated in the streets, at least, tend to be very highly educated. So that across all of these marches, at least 70% of the people who have come out have had a college degree or higher, which is pretty remarkable. Um, they tend to be predominantly white, but they also tend to have a representation from uh, people of color and people with varied ethnic backgrounds. And in a lot of ways, when you compare the demographics of people protesting in the streets, when you just think about them as educated people, the demographics are very similar to educated people in America more generally. Right. You asked me about political ide ideology, and while people in the streets are overwhelmingly left-leaning, at the same time, there are um, increasing portions of the people who are coming out to protest who would self-identify as moderate or even some who would identify as right, and that actually um, right-leaning in their ideology. And so that in more recent marches, we've seen four to five percent of the people coming out who self-identify as right-leaning in their political ideology. Oh, interesting. You know, I, I, wonder, I wonder if maybe we see this kind of demographic uh, profile because these are people who feel that they don't have access to sort of the, the influencers and the, level, the levers of power as, uh, as other folks might have. 
No question. I mean, one of the reasons people take to the streets is because they feel like they have no other channel into a political institution. So that's exactly correct. People wouldn't be marching if they could go and feel like their positions and their opinions would be heard if they went to talk to their representatives and went onto the Hill and wanted to talk to people in power. Right. Uh, one thing, though, that I would say is quite interesting about the data that we've collected is that over the past year, so since the inauguration and since the Women's March, uh, overwhelmingly, as I said, the people in the streets have been left-leaning, but fewer and fewer of them report having voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. So that the most recent march for which I have data, which was the March for Racial Justice, at the end of September, 79% of the people who were there reported voting for Hillary Clinton. But that means that, you know, 21% of them reported voting for a third-party candidate or not voting at all. Right. Now, now, you know, we mentioned that most of these most of these things are left of center. But of course, uh, a big protest, a big march uh, that this uh, last year, actually, that got a lot of attention was the uh, white supremacist rally in Charlottesville. So it's it's not like this is entirely a left wing phenomenon, though. And I would guess that they were marching for the same uh, essential reason in that they felt that they weren't being heard. And, and I would say rightfully so, given what they stood for. But it's kind of a similar phenomenon just on the other side, right? Exactly. I mean, basically, uh, you know, usually people take to the streets because they don't feel like they have power to do anything else. And so be they on the right or the left, it's a tactic that is harnessed mostly by people who feel disempowered. Right. They may be disempowered because they have, you know, hateful points of view, uh, or they may feel disempowered because the majority in, you know, the Congress, as well as the, the presidency, all are with the other party. So there are many different reasons why people can feel disempowered. But this kind of activism and marching in the streets is one way that people try to reclaim power, if you will. Right. You know, when I think about citizen activism, and actually when I, when I talk about it in some of my classes, I, I oftentimes compare the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street, because, you know, both started around the same time. And yet, to me, at least, it seems that Occupy Wall Street kind of faded away without doing a whole lot, whereas the Tea Party, I think, managed to do quite a lot, really, to advance their political goals. And I'm wondering if you'd agree with that, and if so, what maybe might account for the difference in effectiveness? Well, I think that one of the reasons that we see such a difference in the effectiveness and the outcomes of Occupy versus the Tea Party is what they had as their goals. I mean, in a lot of ways, Occupy was focused on a redistribution of the wealth and a recognition of inequality in America. And while people may be aware of inequality in America, the idea that uh, redistribution of wealth uh, from the 1% down to the 99% is easily possible is just, is just a really, really hard um, goal to have. At the same time, the Tea Party, in contrast, was focused specifically on making social change through local politics. And they were very effective. And one of the things that I think is very interesting about what we see in the resistance today is that a lot of the groups that have emerged since the inauguration, have, or since the election at least, emerged following uh, the group Indivisible, which specifically decided to try to take a lot of the tactics that the Tea Party used and make them available to organizations on the left. And at this point, they have two, what do they say? They say they have two organizations or more local groups in each congressional district in America. So people have really 
gotten involved and are taking advantage of the tools that they have made available to try to take power back at the local level, which in general, I just think that doing politics on a local level is a lot easier and a lot more feasible. And because you can have right a much, a much greater influence given it takes fewer numbers, it's closer to home. And so it's just a lot more uh, efficient in a lot of ways. Definitely. I mean, and also when you want to talk to somebody who's an elected official, an elected official who's supposed to represent you and your interests and your community, uh, they're much more inclined to listen to your concerns, of course. Right. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. You know, in, in talking about citizen mobilization, uh, oftentimes I make the distinction, a lot of people make the distinction between grassroots movements, essentially kind of genuine from the ground up type of things, and what uh, sometimes are called astroturf movements, which are, as the name would imply, a lot more uh, artificial from the top down. And I was wondering how that applied to the big recent protests you've been studying, if they're, you know, grassroots, astroturf, kind of somewhere in between, maybe. So, I mean, these are very good questions. So I would say that um, and one thing that's very interesting about this current wave of contention that we see that started with the Women's March is the ways that individual citizens in most cases called for these events. I mean, the Women's March the, the, it has this wonderful history of a grandmother in Hawaii the day after the 2016 election going on Facebook and calling for the march. Now, granted, a bunch of seasoned activists ended up taking it over and helping to coordinate it and connect it with a whole bunch of professional organizations in DC. But the march itself was driven by an individual who was just worried and you know wanted there to be a march for women. And I think that the, the March for Science also has a similar um, history about it. So there's something really interesting about this current period of activism. At the same time, there's no question that a lot of these national political groups have been involved. And, you know, you can say that they in some ways are bringing in, I mean, I wouldn't call it AstroTurf as much as, as rather I'd say it's more of this national professionalized perspective. But here's something that I think is really interesting, that if we look at the anniversary of the Women's March, which is taking place this weekend, since we're talking the Wednesday before the anniversary. And what's really interesting is the Women's March, the national organization has called for this event to take place in Las Vegas over the weekend, which is going to be very much connecting with a bunch of national professional organizations. At the same time, women's groups across the country have called for marches, which is none of which are being coordinated by this big national group and instead are being organically called and people are coming out. There are over 250 events scheduled for this weekend across the United States. And many people who marched on Washington DC or New York City last year or LA are now planning on not getting on buses and traveling to these big urban centers, but rather are planning on marching in their communities or in towns nearby. Right. So, and, and all of that is not being coordinated through any type of AstroTurf whatsoever, but rather is being really grown from the grassroots up. You know, that, I wanted to ask you about that as well, kind of on a related issue is sometimes you'll hear, well, these are essentially educated elite, often coastal elite sort of dominated things. And the people who you know, really are most affected by these are not the, not the people who are out there marching and so forth. I mean, is that, is, is that a legitimate concern at representativeness or, or lack thereof? You know, in some cases, I, I can see that uh, explanation. 
In this case, however, what we really see is these maps of people who have decided to hold events all across the country. And it's not being coordinated by coastal elites who are telling them what to do. In fact, there's a lot of complaints that there aren't more tools and more resources available to the groups that are housing these marches or, or hosting these marches this weekend. So I actually don't, I don't see that right now. I mean, historically, people have said that about the left. And I think, I mean, I've even written about those kinds of concerns, but I don't see it today. Now, another thing I wanted to ask you about is sort of uh, long-term effectiveness. You know, these, these uh, events, when they occur, of course, they get a lot of media attention, ideally. I mean, you would, one would hope so. And it reminds me of, a movie I always encourage people to, to watch, one of my favorite movies of all time. It's uh, called Network, where in this big famous scene, the TV anchor man, Howard Beale, he tells people, open up your windows and scream, I'm as mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. And, you know, people do that, and it's a rousing, sort of inspiring moment, and then nothing really seems to happen after that. And and sometimes I got to wonder if protest marches aren't like that. I mean, you can get people excited, get them to vent and rise up and express their anger. And then everyone goes home, the cameras shut down, and it's kind of business as usual where the insiders do what the insiders do. Is that, do you see that happening here? Is that a concern? Well, it's always a concern when people are focusing on large-scale marches. And I actually think that that exact critique that you mentioned here using the example from Network is one of the reasons why the national organizers of the Women's March decided not to do another big march, because they didn't want the movement to be seen as just about people going in the streets, wearing silly hats and yelling and chanting. However, I think that there's this there's something very special about seeing a sea of people marching and coming together because they care about something. And in the case of the resistance, which is, goes well beyond the Women's March and just the women's movement, I should say, what, what's very interesting that we see is this focus now on local politics and local civic engagement. And one of the other things that we've been doing as we go out and survey people in the crowds at these events is we ask them a bunch of questions about the types of activities that they might have done civically or politically over the past year. One of the things that's fascinating is over time, as we've gone into the crowd since the Women's March, the day after the inauguration, all the way through the March for Racial Justice is that at every event, the percentage of people who have attended a town hall meeting has gone up. And at this point, I mean, as of the end of September, it was over half of the people in the crowd had been participating in politics that way, which is very unique. 65% of them had contacted their elected officials about issues that concern them. So these are people who are not just opening their windows and screaming out or marching in the streets for one day and then going back and sitting on their armchairs and, you know, watching TV. Right. These are people who are doing other things. So that's some, that's very, that's unique. And, you know, as somebody who studies social movements, we know that protesting is just one tactic. Marching in the streets is just one tactic in, you know, the toolbox of an activist. And based on the data I've collected, we see that a lot of other tools are being used by people in the resistance to create social change, which is really heartening and makes you think that they're not just yelling into the wind. Right. So, so why do you think that's happening now? I mean, is it that, that people are more aware or that the, the organizers of these movements are, are more savvy and are better able to sort of connect the energy of the movement and get people to understand the importance of this or, or maybe some combination of these things? 
Well, I, I think in my book, I talk about three specific reasons that the resistance has emerged. And I actually would, I, I've argued that the resistance has emerged in response to a relatively ineffective Democratic Party, which has limited infrastructure in local communities. And I think we've seen a lot of new organizations emerging, including Indivisible, which I've mentioned already, specifically to fill up what, what I think of as an infrastructural void that exists on the left in America. So in some ways, it's the exact opposite of what you're saying. But I think that um, at the same time that there are these people who are just, you know, perhaps they are fed up and they don't want to take it anymore. They are starting to try to figure out how to connect with one another. And one of the things that is actually empowering them is the rhetoric of the president himself, I would argue. I think that the way that he has been using social media to send out frequently messages that seem attacking and divisive to many has motivated people to continue working together, whereas they might otherwise decide that they have other things to do with their time. Right. In fact, I've, I've heard, I, I've said this myself, that, uh, that actually in certain ways, uh, strange as it may seem, President Trump might, be, might have been better than some other Republicans with similar policies who could have won because he does keep people so energized in a way that maybe a, a more, oh, shall we say, conventional a Republican president wouldn't. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that it uh, is really good. The way that he's governing is really good for democracy in America in terms of the ways that individual citizens are getting involved. Uh, the jury's still out on if it's actually good for America or yeah, not. Definitely. Now, you mentioned uh, that uh, that resistance is about more than marches, and that's, of course, the, the big kind of public media face of it. I was wondering if you could Talk about the other ways that people are engaging and trying to move this forward and make it more than just an event that happens and then goes away. Yeah, the, well, what a lot of the these new organizations are doing is they're focusing on providing tools for people who are working in their communities. So these small little organizations, most of which are just a few people strong, that are trying to make a difference by keeping track of what their elected officials doing and play a role in the 2018 midterm elections. So a lot of different people have talked to me about how not only are they marching, but they're also participating by getting to know their local politicians and going and visiting them in the district or going to a town hall meeting. And their intention is to continue this through the midterm election. And that is a kind of engagement that we really haven't seen on a regular basis for most Americans. And it is, you know, is very reminiscent of the ways that the Tea Party engaged its constituents back in the day. Right. And that's a particular issue, certainly for, for people of the left, in that turnout and engagement in midterm elections has historically not been not been very good. Exactly. But uh you know, and there are all these predictions today. It's a long ways away till we get to November about, you know, what's going to happen in the midterm elections. But I will be shocked if we don't see turnout going up. Yeah. And I would imagine turnouts going up across the board, not just for people on the left. But if these organizations are able to sustain their level of interest through the rest of the year, I would guess that we're going to see a lot more turnout by people on the left than we historically do for a midterm election. Right. You know, one thing I, I wanted to be sure to ask you is, and I'm sure you've heard this too, is right after the Women's March, right when it was going on, in fact, uh, what I heard some of my fellow liberals say is, uh, 
and I kind of thought it a little bit myself, I guess, is, you know, it's, it's wonderful to see and it's inspiring and moving. But then I thought, man, if just a few more of these people had bothered to vote a few months ago, this wouldn't be necessary in a certain way. Uh, you know, what do you think about that, that critique, I guess you'd call it maybe? Well, I mean, I would just say that having been, you know, having been at the Women's March in D.C. and having surveyed people at the Women's March in D.C., and we surveyed over 500 people at the Women's March throughout the whole crowd, uh, 94% of them reported voting. And most of the people who didn't vote actually said that they didn't have a status that enabled them to vote. So at least the people who came out for the Women's March are not people who didn't bother to vote. It's just unfortunate that their vote, you know, right. didn't affect Electoral College. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, and I would just say so. So those people continuing to vote is really important. I mean, I, the fact that the percentage of people who, you know, who report not voting has gone up as a percentage of who's in the crowd at these different events suggests that there are people who were um, disengaged or chose not to vote, perhaps as a their own form of protest during the 2016 election who have gotten involved enough that they're willing to march. Now, will they actually vote? One, you know. Well, one would think, one would think that given what's required to go out and march and so forth, that the, the bar might be a little lower in terms of voting. And so that, that, would, that would transfer over, one would hope, I would think. I would, I would think so. I mean, and I also just think that there is so much more attention being paid to politics in America than there have been historically. Just the degree to which People are talking about politics and keeping track of what's going on. Now, whether or not that trickles down to local politics, it, it's not clear, but I would predict that people are starting to really see what's going on and see how, you know, the sausage factory works in their local communities. And if you're paying attention to that, then, of course, going out and voting on Election Day make, is much easier. Yeah. And, and that's not an ideological thing either, whether you're a person of the left or the right paying attention and, and, and learning about how the, as the sausage is being made, as you said, that's a, that's a useful thing that's really important for, for a strong democracy. Oh, definitely. And I think it's, it's vital for, you know, the future of America and to democracy generally. So as I said before, I mean, in a lot of ways, what we see today is very promising for the future of, or the promise of America, if you could call it that. Yeah, ab absolutely. And given, given so much bad news that we hear, it is nice to be able to to think positively, at least at least about that. Um, I have one final question I have for you, uh, and maybe this is the most important question. I don't know. Um, what's your advice for people who are interested in trying to make a difference, whatever their political views, through uh, direct citizen action? I mean, where should they start? What sort of things are most likely to be effective? Well, I think that uh, I'm going to continue with uh, the theme of what I've been saying. I think that anybody who wants to get involved and cares, be they whatever it is that they care about. I think that the most important thing to do is get involved in your local community and start to find like-minded individuals in your community to work together to keep track of what's going on politically at home. Because politics starts at home and politics starts in local communities. And of course, you know, I'm not saying people shouldn't vote in the midterms for, you know, representation in Washington, but I think that's a very small part of what we need to do. And the best way to make a difference is to make a difference where you live. Absolutely. I, I could not agree more. And with that, we will close. Uh, Dr. Fisher, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me, Michael.
That's it for this Politics Guys interview. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you heard. Now, listener support is really what helps keep the show going. If you'd like to help us out, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on either the Patreon or PayPal links. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also really does help. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguides.com or our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post stuff throughout the week. That's facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guides are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.